I want to welcome you to this 15th week on the names of God. And as I've looked back and listened to all of them at least once, there seems to be three questions that keep being asked in some way that the names of God answer. And they're not just questions that religious people ask. They're ones that are in all of us. I think they're maybe the three most important questions you could ask. One, is God there? And on the heels of that, does he care? And then third, is he good? We've been singing about that. Is God there? It's a whole name of God, Jehovah Shammah, that's dedicated to the answer to that question. It literally is translated, the God, the Lord is there. It's not just a question originating in the Scripture with the Israelites or with us today. It's asked by everybody. You can go anywhere in the world at any time, and you see people worshiping some kind of God. Think about that. Even Paul, when he went into the secular city of Athens, he, he said, I even see you have a monument here to an unknown God. Perhaps today we have more atheists and agnostics than maybe other points in history, but still, all of us worship something. And though we may not call him God or call him Jesus, it, it might be money or power or status, even family causes, good causes even, something that we strive for that's greater than ourselves. It's an ontological, innate part of being human. You can't help it. You and I and everyone who's ever been formed is created to worship. You, you may not fill it with what you think is a God or some deity, but God has made us that. And maybe the reason we have more agnostics and atheists and all that is because of how people have answered those second questions. Well, if there is a God, does he care? Does he care? And specifically, does he care about me? Does he care about people? In the ancient Near East, all the other gods we see laid out in the Scripture of the Old Testament, there were gods who were basically self-seeking gods. They were primarily concerned about themselves, and so humans knew their place. Be sure not to offend them, or it's not going to go well with you. Or if you can sort of in a quid pro quo way Make them happy, then they will bestow blessing on you. Fertility or rain or victory in battle or whatever that is that you might be looking for. But it's very different than El Roy, the God who sees me, we talked about, who was spoken to Hagar, a really despised maidservant of Sarah at that time. God says, I see you. El Shaddai, the God who, like a mother with a child, couldn't love anything more than that one in front of her. God says, this is how I see you. He cares. So even if God is there, even if he cares, is he good? 
question that all of us come to ask. And even though, you know, we heard about Jehovah Raha, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, we still come up with these other images of God. As, you know, we are made in him, as we are made in the image of God, we've sort of returned the favor, as somebody said. We've made him in our image. So we see God like we see ourselves, and sometimes we see God like we see his followers, which is a scary thought. Gandhi is kind of famously quoted when he was supposedly considering Christianity for himself. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And we're on a lot of heat these days, aren't we? And not all for no reason. We don't just bear our own names when we bear the name of Christian. For some people, that is how they view God when they look at us. What do we bleed? Other images of God come from our father images, just a natural thing. I'm going flying today to Minnesota to be with my father. And I love my father. I know my father loves me, but my image of God gets distorted oftentimes because my dad is a very passive, laid-back, kind of distant person. And that is honestly the first view of God that almost always comes to my mind when things get rough. Well, he's probably not going to really be able to do much about it. I'm going to have to take this one on myself. And Pastor Tom next week is going to conclude our study around the name Abba, Father, the real one. And he is good. Well, a little deeper into the first question, is God there? Jehovah Shammah. This name appears only one time in all of Scripture, and it's pretty late, 586 years before Christ. At the end of a rather obscure prophetic book, the book of Ezekiel, it's the final verse. And here's what it says. The distance around the entire city will be six miles. Your translation probably says 18,000 cubits. That's what they said then. And from that day on, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. It's a one rendition of how you would even say Jerusalem. It concludes like nine, if you look back in Ezekiel, if you turn there in a real Bible, you'll see like nine chapters of these very elaborate plans for this temple in the city of, of uh, Jerusalem. And you have to understand, in this context, these people have now been 25 years in prison, taken out of not only Jerusalem and this promised land for them, but put into Babylonia in prison, into Babylon, rather. It's been actually 14 years since their temple was destroyed, and they're getting this image of this new temple. One that, by the way, has never been built. Six miles around, if you know anything about that 
holy city. There's really no place for it. And so some people say, well, maybe in the new millennium, that's when it's going to be rebuilt. And others say, well, no, it's more of a figurative view that in the end, the Messiah himself will replace the temple, the sacrifices, and all of the land. And this is what it will be. Either way, for these people, their only concept of God was to reside in his temple. And now they've been 25 years removed from it. Just, you know, we've been singing all morning about God's presence and his place with us and where he is. And just think about what we know historically about where the presence of God is. It begins, you know, back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God speaks over 2,000 times in the Old Testament to prophets and through Noah and Abraham and all these people. But where he really resides is only a few places in the Scripture where the whole masses could see him. First, in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if this is what it looks like. I'm quite sure it isn't. But there was unhindered connection with God. Moses, when he asked at one time, could he see God's presence, God said, well, the problem is if you look on me, you're going to die. But I will hide you behind a rock and just pass by my backside and, and let you just get, like if you close your eyes and, you know, all of that. And he came away just shining, right, with the glory of God. Well, Adam and Eve had this uninterrupted, unhindered connection with God in the garden before they ate of that forbidden fruit. And then many years later, God calls a people out through Abraham. Their sole purpose was to be the vehicle by which he would bless the whole world. And they found themselves in captivity in Egypt, and Moses leads them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he has them build for his presence a tent, a portable tabernacle at Mount Sinai. And he would reside there in the Holy of Holies. And they, whenever they would move, they would pack up the tent. And God would, when they reset it up, he would be there. And this lasted roughly 440 years. So all those who lived in that time and even after knew that this was the presence of God. And even though only once a year the high priest could go into that Holy of Holies and make atonement, their whole identity was around where the presence of God would be. They carried it into the promised land until King Solomon built the first permanent temple in Jerusalem. And it looks a lot nicer, doesn't it? And there, again, in the Holy of Holies is where God resides, and all of the identity of God's people is around. We know where the presence of God dwells. They took great comfort in that. And that lasted about 410 years until the divided kingdom of the north is attacked by Assyria. They go into captivity, and then the southern kingdom in about 586 B.C. is attacked by the Babylonians, and they're taken into prison there. And this is when Ezekiel writes this prophetic word. parallels what Lou covered last week of Jeremiah and what happened to the Israelites as a result directly of their idolatry, their rebellion against God, their evil and unjust acts had consequences. And God's people are removed. They're taken away from their experience of where they 
know God, their land, their possessions. They're back in prison. And they know the stories of 440 years in prison in Egypt. And they have every day to look at. Look what we did. And we're back again. For all of this, we're right where we were all those years ago and where God freed us from. Shows us that there's a consequence, a real consequence to sin, to rebellion, disregard for God, injustice. We're removed from his previous blessings. Some of you have had that experience where you reaped what you sowed. Things would not be the same. And yet Ezekiel writes to tell us that one thing that doesn't change is that God never leaves us. His presence, though it's not familiar anymore, there's not a place where we go where we can say this is where he is, he never removes his presence from us. And I'm imagining that these people had a hard time envisioning God being in Babylon, that evil place, and felt a long ways away and certainly had to be asking, is God there, and does he care, and is he still good? But Ezekiel says dry bones will be brought back to life. And it wasn't like this was a concept that they should be unfamiliar with. David, many years earlier, wrote in Psalm 139, Where can I go that you're not there? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle in the farthest sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God's presence isn't dependent on our goodness. And that's the good news of this word. And even though he had to sort of give it in a temple illustration because that was their best shot at that time of understanding God. And his judgment doesn't last forever. Seventy years after they go into captivity, they're brought back and into this promised land and they rebuild the temple again. So you can see this next image. And this is what Jesus walked around. And when we were in the book of Mark recently here as a church, this lasted from 515 B.C. all the way up until 70 A.D. Jesus walked through here. And even though it would only last 585 years, God again dwelled with his people. But 400 of those years, it says that he was really silent. From the book of Micah till Matthew, 400 years until in the fullness of time, Christ would come. And his presence would return to the temple again, but now in the form of a tiny baby being brought to the temple by his parents to be offered back to God. Emmanuel, God 
with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or as the Tree of Life version said, tabernacled among us. And God shows up in an entirely different way. First, the Garden of Eden, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple, then in Jesus, who is all the fullness of God in bodily form. And every name we've studied over these several weeks, he exemplifies them. Elohim, creators, Colossians 1, Christ, the invisible, the invisible image of the invisible God who existed before all else was made and is supreme over all creation. Through Christ, God created all that has been created in all heaven and earth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God, and He created everything in the beginning. Yahweh, the great I Am, Jesus declared before Abraham was, I am. Jehovah Jireh, provider, in Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Matthew says that large crowds came to him bringing lame, crippled, blind, mute, and he laid his hands at their, they laid them at his feet and he healed all of them. Do you want to know what God looks like? What he's like? Jesus, he is the visible image of the invisible God. And he came and now the temple was no more. A few years later it was destroyed. But God's presence was all the more real. And now we live in a different day. Jesus resurrected, ascended, and this is the thing. The fourth, uh, fifth dwelling place of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are. And where two or three are gathered in His name as we are today, He is in our midst. I will be with you even to the end of the age. It's what's somewhat scary, isn't it? There's a quote from Alexander the Great so many years ago, uh, before Christ even, where he admonishes some of um, uh, the, the followers of God. Either change your actions or change your name. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And someday, it will be different again. A sixth way that God dwells among us. It's written about in John's Revelation Chapter 21, listen to this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne, Look, the home of God is now among His people. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will remove all their sorrows. There'll be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain, for the old world and its evils are gone forever. Verse 22, no temple could be seen in the city, for the Lord God Almighty 
and the Lamb are its temple. That's the future dwelling of God with us again, unhindered, unhindered forever. And yet when you look at all of these stages of God's people and where God dwelled with them, one thing that's in common across all of them was that we hid from that very presence. Even though we asked, well, is God good and is he there and where is he, does he care? We still hid from him. And I can relate to that. Do I really want him that there with me? I'm thinking about my days in college. Well, it'd be best if we could you know, not be so close now. Or as a young stockbroker, I just want to make my own place in the world. And God is, you know, he's a continual hindrance to that. Just that voice always at you when you want to do things your own way. Or now as well. To be confined to his gaze and his ways means I have to go back and say, you know what? I lied about that. I'm sorry. I cheated. I'm sorry. I gossiped about you. Will you forgive me? Or even worse, to have to forgive you. Or worse yet, I'd rather live in the shame sometimes than to live in the grace of God's presence. I can relate to the Israelites. It's more handy to have God at a place that you can go once a week than his presence, this glory that's just all around. You can't get away from him. You try in all kinds of ways. It's like the little kid who covers their eyes and thinks that they're hiding from you. This wasn't original with me or you. Adam and Eve started the whole thing, didn't they, in the garden. Even though they were with their provider, their creator, the one who was so close to them, they knew he was there, but did he really care? Once they messed up, did he really care? And they were sure he cared a lot more about the rules than he cared about them, and so they took it upon themselves. And they cared for themselves, they covered themselves, they hid And shame was brought into the world. And while God does care about rules and standards and laws and commands and calls to justice, Lou spoke about it last week, but he also said that his righteousness really is right-relatedness. His rules, his standards, all of these things are to either protect me or to provide for me. It doesn't say God so loved the rules that he gave his only son. God so loved the world, he loved you, he loved me so much that he gave his only son. And he sets up ways for us to live, to experience his presence all the more. And so, as we come back again to those questions, is God there? Yes, closer than a brother, Emmanuel, with us. Where can I go that you're not? No place. And one time that felt like a prison to me. I can't get away. 
It doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like safety and freedom and abundance. Because I'm understanding those second two questions. Does he care? He knows a number of hairs on your head. He thinks about you continuously, you. You're engraved on the palm of his hand. He sings over you with joy. He's not disappointed in you. He's not disappointed in you. He cares for you. He loves you. And is he good? Is he really good? Even when you're faithless, he's faithful. He can't be who he's not. His love never fails. Cares about you, loves you more than you could ever love yourself. God is there. How does that feel? The God who is there. You don't have to awaken him, call on him, as prophets did in the old days. He's there. He cares and he's good. Let's pray. God, even as Moses tried to run from your presence for a long time, when you showed yourself to him, even in that bush, it changed him. So much that he said after that, whatever you call me to do, just don't let me go without you. And I thank you that that prayer is not relevant for us today. We, we, there's no place we can go that you're not. We never have to ask you to be with us. You're here. What we do ask is that you would open our eyes to see the one who is with us, who he really is. That even at our lowest place, you're so powerfully present. Sometimes God isn't all we need until he's all we have. And these days we have seemingly a lot less of a lot of things. Let it open up a space in us for your presence, your shama, to reside fuller, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.